Good morning. morning. And good morning to our online listeners uh, around the globe. We appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, You might notice I'm not wearing a sport coat or tie today. It is already over 90 degrees this morning, and it's going to supposedly hit 106 here today. It was 106 yesterday. So if you're not here in the south and you're watching us from a land that's cool, bless you. Um, Send us a little cool air. An announcement change for our our seminar this fall. As you know, we're doing the uh, first um, Modern Medicine, Biblical Technology, and Your Mind or Your Brain lecture uh, series this uh, this fall in October. Uh, Dr. Markham, who is also one of the speakers, uh, his uh, group's call schedule just got posted for the fall, and he will be on call on the 13th, the day we were scheduling to do it, and he hasn't been able to get off, so we're going to have to move the day one week. We're doing October 20. So put on your calendar now, October 20, for the, uh, for the lecture series. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study together. Uh, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that you will fill our hearts with your presence this morning and that we will draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson uh, number two in the quarterly, First and Second Thessalonians. And the uh, title this week is Preserving Relationships. And as I looked at the title, uh, the question came to me, and the answer is pretty obvious, but what are the only things that we get to take to heaven? Ourselves, which are characters, and the people we love. I mean, just us and people, that's it. Um, You know, when we go to heaven, we don't take our houses, or our cars, or our computers, or or our Bibles, Bibles, uh, our clothes. Think about that, you're not going to go to heaven in your clothes. But the good news about that is you don't go in those bodies you got either. See, we get new bodies. We don't take these bodies with us. Isn't that exciting? I'm glad. Yeah, we get new ones. But the only thing we take, we take ourselves, we take our, our friends. And if you think about this, does that give a perspective on what's important in our lives today? Yeah. The key thought in the lesson say it's true evangelism true evangelism leads to relationships that can stand the test of time. And the question I have for the class is, what is necessary for a relationship to stand the test of time? Trust. That's the first thing I had, too. Trust, and I had a second one. Honesty. Well, trust, and, trust is built on honesty. Okay, trust, honesty. Giving. <laughs> Giving, which is another word for love. So trust and love would be the two primary ingredients, wouldn't you think? And then the next question I had then is, what's necessary for us to have in our relationships, trust and love? A truth. An interest. Respect. Respect. Think about our condition. Think about who we are as human beings on planet Earth. And as we step into relationships, what do we bring with us into our relationships? God-like character. Do we bring God-like character? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. Do we naturally bring God-like character into relationships? No, the change and growth uh, occur in that relationship as you build the relationship. So the question was, what's necessary to have love and trust in relationships? Wouldn't that require a conversion experience? Wouldn't that require a, a new heart and right spirit? Wouldn't that require a transforming presence of God working in the heart? I mean, if we go into relationships on our own, by ourselves, without the working of the spirit... Is there any chance on our own we're going to get those healthy, lasting relationships? Yes, no? 
No. No, I don't think so either. So I think the first most critical thing to have a, a loving, trusting relationship is for the individual. You know, I've said this in this way. Healthy relationships require healthy people. If you're not relationally, emotionally, spiritually healthy person, it doesn't matter who you're relating to, you won't have a healthy relationship. Yes? We're basically self-centered, and without some divine intervention, it can be very difficult to change that. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, so our natural self, going on our own strength, is going to have that desire to watch out for self, promote self, protect self. So this is, it seems to me to get that love and trust, we have to have a change of heart motive that we really care and love, and love others. Um, which requires then what Wendell said, or I think it was Wendell, the truth. How do we come back to have a heart transformation? Except we come back to the truth or the knowledge of God. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? We, we use the word sin, but what is sin? Self-centeredness. It's, it's broken relation with God. It's, it's, re, it's rebellion against his, his methods, principles, his kingdom. It's, uh, it's, some words use lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? Living outside design protocols for, for good functioning. Did you all hear that? She says lawlessness is living outside design protocols for good functioning. In other words, living outside of God's law of love. Living selfishly. Yeah, exactly right. So we have to come back to the knowledge of God, because if we don't come back to the knowledge of God, will we trust him? If we hold to the views of God that Satan pr- promotes, will we trust God? To know God is to love God. No. So we have to know him, and when we know him, we love and trust him, and we love and trust him, what do we do with our heart? We give it, open it. And there's a transforming power comes to begin to work. Does the, does the Holy Spirit force himself upon us? No. So we have to be one to trust, and that's through a revelation of the truth that Christ brought. So once the heart has changed, once we've opened the heart, once the Spirit starts working in us, are there then certain traits of character that begin to be manifest in the life? Anybody want to run some of those by me? Fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, fruit of the Spirit. You said, what are some of those? You guys are just, zoop, look at that, boom, okay? Yeah, uh, and the, are these things necessary for lasting relationships? Yes. Notice the importance of that. Yeah. And where do they arise? Some people will just jump to the end, get the list out of Galatians, hey, lasting relationships are going to require these things, and they begin to work on them. Begin to work. Got to work hard to be patient. Got to work hard to be loving. Got to work hard. Got to work. Got to work. Where does it arise? From working to have the end goal or from having that relationship with Christ who's working in us? See the difference? So the other question, let's look at the other side of this coin. What causes relationships to fail? The obvious big answer, that kind of umbrella answer is selfishness. Okay, everybody knew that answer. Selfishness. But... Well, how, does that, how does that actually look? How does it manifest in day-to-day living? Well, a couple weeks back, we had a lecture on domestic violence in the church. How people, and we've and we shown how in the church, people can be very pious. They can go to church regularly. They can eat the right foods. They can do all, pay their tithe. They can be leaders and pastors in the church. And they can go home and beat their family. 
Because their family's not doing exactly what they think. Because their family isn't abiding by the rules. But why can they do that? Because they're focusing on behavior, they're working, but the heart isn't changed. So one manifestation of selfishness would be abusing your family. I mean, that's an obvious one. Other, others. How, how else does selfishness manifest? How about insecurity in relationships? You ever known people that were insecure in relationships? They're not abusing people. They're insecure in their relationships. They live in fear in their relationships. You ever known people to live in insecurity and fear in their relationships? Yeah, and what does that look like? If somebody's in a relationship and, and they aren't operating from love, they're operating from fear and insecurity. What, is, what happens to that relationship? Jealousy. Jealousy. Defensiveness. Defensiveness. Codependence. Codependence. And so would the person like that be suspicious? Uh, perceive injury or slight when no injury or slight was given? Victim mentality. Victim mentality. And so how, how do they respond in the relationship? With, with accusation? With allegation? With whining and crying? You don't care about me? You don't love me? You weren't there for me? And all this kind of stuff? Insecurity. Based on getting self-needs met rather than love based on using my energy to bless somebody else. So selfishness can manifest in insecurity. What about resentment? Bitterness? And unforgiveness. What do those things do to relationships? Yeah. In the world in which we live, is it possible for you to have a relationship with somebody on this planet and not ever get disappointed or hurt? No. Possible. You're dealing with a bunch of flawed human beings. We will let each other down from time to time. Sometimes it can be purposeful and vindictive, like a terrorist or seeking to kill Americans. Sometimes it can be accidental and inadvertent. I didn't realize. But we can still be hurt or let down. Question. If we don't forgive, if we hold grudges, what happens to the relationship? It goes to pot. She says it goes to pot. It gets poisoned. poisoned. And what happens to you? Not only what happens to the relationship if you don't forgive somebody, what happens to you? Self-destruct. Self-destruct, he says. Do you think if you are, are resentful and bitter at somebody who's done you wrong, that it affects only that relationship? How else might it, where else might it manifest? Other relationships. How might it manifest in other relationships? Suspicion. Oh, because you've been hurt here, because you're angry at so-and-so, because you're resentful for what they've done, then if somebody else tries to get close to you, what might your attitude be? Project the same image onto them. She says project the same image onto them. Are you as willing to trust? Are you guarded? Suspicious? If somebody else makes a similar behavior with a completely different motive... Complete different similar behavior, might you see the same emotive as the person who hurt you and allege and, uh, that they're against you too? Do you see how unforgiveness and bitterness poisons your heart and contaminates relationships? What is it that prevents people from forgiving? Why don't we do it? Pride. She says pride. How, how, does, how does pride prevent people from forgiving? Don't want people to think any less of you. So you want them to humble themselves before you forgive them. Okay, yes. 
Well, I just want to testify that I think that this is one of the most important things about being a Christian, is that when you have a negative, unforgiving heart, and you take that to God, He can truly, and I don't know how this happens, but He can truly change my heart. And so if you want to talk about the process... We're, that's I coming next. It, that's I, coming next. I don't know how it happens. We're, we're looking at obstacles next. The next we're going to ask is, and how do we overcome those obstacles? So you're, you're, you're going down the right path. Yeah, Russell, what are the other things that keep us from, from forgiving? Well, a misunderstanding about the nature of forgiveness itself. Expand on that a little bit. We'll often uh, mistakenly uh, equate forgiveness with uh, restoration or, or reconciliation. And that means trust, right? Correct. So for, does forgiveness and trust, are they the same? No, they're not the same at all. And I think they're you're related, right. But they're not, they're not the same. See, because people have this idea, if I forgive, I have to for- forget. Get. And if I forget, then I'm more vulnerable. So, so this idea of trust, this idea of forgetting, makes people feel, I can't forgive because I'll be vulnerable. This is, this is, of course, a misunderstanding or a myth. But it is one of the reasons why people hold to unforgiveness because unforgiveness can sometimes make us feel powerful can make us feel um like we have you know we're angry and we're ready to pounce if somebody does anything again so we don't feel vulnerable so we hold on to it in a way to strengthen ourselves yeah over here denial can denial turn around sitting there going well i'm not the one with the problem everybody else is ah so denial it's you know hey i have every right you did wrong i didn't do wrong i have every right to feel this way Denial. Yes, Kathy. Misconception is that if you forgive, then you're condoning the behavior of the person who did that. Did everybody hear that? That if we forgive, we condone the behavior as if it's okay. Uh, yes. I was going to say the same thing. Okay, over here, Linda. And you're going to say the same. So all three of y'all have the same idea. That must be a very important one. Yes. Okay. Um, there's also the idea that if I forgive them, they're going to get away with it. Ah, there you go. If I forgive them, they're going to get away with it, which to me comes back to a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature and character of sin, which comes back to a fundamental misunderstanding of what's the theme of our class lately? The law of God. See, if you understand God's law as the design protocol upon which life has been built to operate, when you break that law, like, give me an example, somebody. Law of respiration. God built us to breathe. If you tie a plastic bag over your head, you break the law. How about you, 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 you jab a pencil in your eye? Eyes were not built for pencils to be jabbed in them. Breaks the fundamental laws of what the eyes are supposed to do. Um, if you break these fundamental construction protocols, does somebody have to impose penalties upon you? No. no. But how about if we view the law as imposed, like the speed limit? legislated, enacted. It's not actually built into how life operates. It's just a rule put upon us to control behavior. Then if you break that law, what's required? If nobody catches you, you get away with it. If nobody catches you, you get away with it. There's no consequence. And if you are caught, though, because God catches everybody, right? There's an imposed penalty. And so um, one of the founders of our church wrote, um, we are uh, in... um, in a book called First Selected Messages, page 235, and we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstance that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner and makes it easy for him to sin again and separates him from God bringing forth the sure result. 
ruin and death, the short result. And so if you think about this, um, that description is describing violating a law upon which life is built. When you violate that law, you ruin and damage yourself. You sear the conscience, you warp the character, you, tra- you, you ruin your reasoning abilities, and you take yourself further and further and further away from godliness. But if you view the law as having no bearing on our actual development of character, it doesn't really change us, we just get in legal trouble. We have a list of, 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 penalty, of, of, of crimes that have to be punished by the state, well, then we can't forgive until proper punishment has been meted out. They'll get away with it. We don't hold them accountable. Let me tell you, if you understand sin properly, nobody ever gets away with it. And I have patients who have been molested, and in the, and in the uh, therapy, therapy process, at some point when time is right in their recovery, we have to address this issue. Forgiving the people who did you wrong. Not for the sake of the person who did them wrong. If you forgive somebody who's done you wrong, who gets changed by that act? You or the other person? It changes your heart. It transforms you. And so they have to let go of the bitterness and resentment or they will continue to walk around and be damaged by that. But they have this very same thing. Well, you know, they were never caught. They, they, nobody ever found out. They were, they were never punished. And I'm not going to let them get away with it. And so I asked the question, if God took you to heaven right now, and gave you an option between two choices. Option A, God says, I'm going to send you back to earth. Your life is exactly as it's been. There are no changes. Option B, if you want it, I'll let you switch lives with the person who molested you. You get to live their life and go around molesting kids, but no one will ever molest you. Whose life do you choose? Whose life would you choose? 100% of my patients choose their own life. And I say, why? And then the light goes on. You see, when you are mistreated by somebody, they can damage your body. They can damage your emotions. They can damage your psychology. But they cannot damage your soul. Your conscience remains clear. Your character remains unwarped. But when you injure somebody else, you damage your soul. You warp your conscience. And you can't avoid that consequence when you do evil to another person. So when you understand the fundamental nature of sin, that it destroys the sinner themselves, then you don't have to hold out a need to punish them. They're being punished. This is what Paul means when in Romans he talks about they're piling up wrath for the day of wrath because every time somebody does wrong, the, the mind automatically gives conviction of guilt. We don't like guilt, so we want guilt to go away. And there's only two ways to make guilt go away. God's way, which is repentance, repentance and if necessary, restoration. Okay, repentance, which is a true transformation of heart through God's Spirit working in us. But there's another way to avoid guilt. What's that way? Denial and distortion. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put her in the garden, I would have never taken that fruit. I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Deny and distort. And so when we do wrong, feel guilty, deny and distort, then we go out and do wrong again, have another conviction of guilt, deny and distort, deny. We keep piling up the wrath for the day of wrath in our own minds, so that the day we come face to face with our own life history and record, it's going to be a terrible moment of torment to see who we really are when our own character is unveiled to us and we see us without any denial and distortion if we haven't been renewed by the Spirit. It's an awful day. Yes? You know, one of the the interesting parallels I've been thinking about this week is that if we as as an American society had 
uh, been better at observing the laws of health, which are laws that God created for our benefit, and they're, they're laws of natural consequence, so then we now wouldn't be living under the umbrella of the law of health care. True. It's an arbitrary law that was enacted and imposed on us. No, there's no question. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful parallel, I think. Absolutely. That law of health care got put into place because we don't follow the laws of health. Correct. Yeah, and so the Ten Commandments came into being because... We weren't following God's law of life, the law of love. Exactly right. Yes. What did you mean by soul? What part of the neuroanatomy is soul? Uh, I was meaning character, our individuality, our identity, our personhood as soul. That's who we are in character. What, what, what do we take to heaven with us when we go? Our character, our individuality, our identity. And that's what gets damaged and warped when we sin. Good question. Um, what prevents uh, we, we did, what prevents people from forgiving? What is it that enables people to forgive? Now we're into the solution part. What is it that enables? No longer feeling like you are the judge uh, and the one that needs to impose that to be able to let go of the hurt that happened to you and give all of that to the Heavenly Father. Okay. Other thoughts? Oh. She says, I think when you realize, and I'm going to take it beyond realize, when you experience how much God has forgiven you, that is transforming to the heart. The kindness of God leads us to repentance in Romans chapter 2 4. So when we experience, when we know we've done wrong, when our consciences are convicting us, when we feel horrible, when we feel unworthy, and we experience grace, we experience acceptance, renewal, love, when we know we don't deserve it. That's powerfully healing to us, isn't it? And that grace enables us to be gracious to others. We need to go way in the back. So forgiving a person, what does it mean in word and thought towards the offender? Feeling sorry for that person, okay? No, actually, it's the forgiving is primarily about the attitudes you have in your heart, that you no longer have an attitude of resentment, that you no longer have an attitude of vengeance, that you no longer have an attitude of recompense, that you no longer have an attitude of want to see them pay, that you actually have in your heart compassion. And I would put it this way, that you see that person in need of restoration and recovery. You see them as being sick of heart and mind. I would put it this way. Um, when I was um, doing some lectures in Southern Florida, a, uh, I was driving, uh, the guy that was driving me around, we were talking about some of these things about God's character of love and so forth. And we were talking about how love doesn't seek to harm. And he said, I don't know, if I, uh, if I uh, you know, came home and there was a crazed drug addict threatening my family with a knife and I had a gun, I'd shoot him. And I said, okay, let's take that scenario. I want you to imagine you, you walk in and there's a 20-year-old crazed drug addict high on hallucinogens, psychotic out of their mind, threatening your wife and other kids, and you have a gun, and that crazed 20-year-old is your firstborn son. Now what do you do? He goes, I don't like you very much. <laughs> you see, is your desire to kill that 20-year-old, is your desire to save that 20-year-old? You want to stop? See, now think it through with me. Think through the whole deal. Not only do you want to save him from the drugs and the psychosis, don't you want to save him from killing the family for his sake? What will he have to live with the rest of his life if he succeeds in killing the family in a psychotic state? 
It will destroy him, won't it? And if you love him, you want to stop him. This is what a forgiving heart is. A forgiving heart sees the bigger picture of what sin does to the sinner. And when you see that the act of sin will destroy the sinner, you want to protect the sinner from sin. The bigger question is, how do you then communicate that to the individual that you are forgiving? You may not be able to. There may be times when it would be inappropriate to communicate that. You'll have to pray, depending on the circumstance and situation, for wisdom on whether there should ever be communication or whether there should not be. There are such situations where you never communicate that because it's not proper. But there are other situations where it's not even able. Christ on the cross. And I think when we come to that proper attitude, our attitude will be, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Notice how, how his concern was. They don't realize... They think they're killing me. But what are they actually doing? Who are they actually killing for eternity? Themselves. They're killing themselves for eternity, not him. Yes? I was going to say, one of the things that gives you the ability to forgive is loving people. Loving your enemy. And, lo- and where does that love come from? It comes from God. So we're back to what we started with earlier, that healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people require a renewed heart with the Holy Spirit indwelling, filling our hearts with love. Yeah, great, excellent. Forgiveness can also be something that you do just because it's right, and then God helps you change it. In other words, it's not something you do based on a feeling, because, oh, I don't feel forgiving. You can say, well, God says I should forgive, therefore I'm going to, and I'm going to ask Him to help me. And then He changes This is well said. This is very well said. What she's saying here is that the act of forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. That we choose to forgive because we understand its purpose, its reason, that it's right. And in time, with God's grace, our feelings will change. But if we wait, and some people, this is a great barrier. Thank you for bringing it up. Great barrier for many, they wait to forgive until they feel like forgiving. In James chapter 1, it says, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone uh, and cannot be tempted by evil. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. So if we wait for the feelings to change, they may never. It's the choice to do what's right because it's right that results in a transformation inside and the feelings will change. That's well said. Thank you. Yes. Sometimes I think one of the things that helps you start on the journey of forgiveness is to understand that some people are so unhealed, so like a burning fire. They're warm enough if you're like a campfire at a distance. The closer you get to that person, the more likely you are to be hurt by that person. It's not a personal thing. A lot of times in a rape situation or somebody, somebody will say, it's my fault that this happened. You know, I played into that or whatever. A lot of women particularly will take on responsibility for that action. And yet it was the other person's action. And so sometimes you, it helps to see a person as a, a burning flame. They're so unhealed. They're so angry, so changed by what's happened in their life that you are just too close to that person. Whoever they live through, whoever they touch through life is going to be injured. And it becomes... Uh, it becomes a way to pray for that person, too, that you realize that unless they're healed, their whole life will be damaged by who they are. Everything the person really wants out of life, connection with people and so on, is going to be severed by their damaged self. They will never get what they really want out of life. Yeah, so what you're just saying is basically that our responsibility is to love others, but be wise in who we trust. We don't trust these people who are so 
still damaged and unhealthy themselves with our intimacies, our confidences, our heart feelings. We don't rely on them because they're unreliable. But that doesn't mean we as Christians don't have compassion for them and seek to minister to them. So we minister with healthy boundaries that don't allow them to become the confidants of our our hearts because they will betray those confidences, not out of maliciousness, but out of immaturity and lack of spiritual growth. So I think that's what you just described, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph states, when someone preaches new teachings and people get excited, the leaders and teachers of other religious groups become jealous. Attention that was once placed upon them is now directed to others. As a result, they may behave in irrational ways in order to try to reduce the influence of the new teacher. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Never. <laughs> So what do you think the possible reasons are that people would behave this way? And I, I was going through some thoughts of the reasons why people might do this. The purposeful opposition to understood truth. They understand the truth, they don't like it, so they purposely oppose it. One reason, yes. Well, they've been teaching one thing and now they're hearing something new and they're defensive. They want to protect what they believe. Ah, so another possible reason. Spent 20 years writing a systematic theology text on a certain atonement model, but new evidence demonstrates that model is wrong. Would such a person be uh, have a difficult time accepting the new evidence? Yes. Well, t- 20 years of their life work into this thing would be meaningless if, if, if the new evidence shows it's wrong. 20 years of wasted energy. You see, there's a real resistance there, conscious, unconscious. That sounds like Thomas Edison said. Yeah. Failed experiments as a way to... Yeah, but Thomas Edison actually was not spending 20 years... Uh, uh, Thomas Edison was spending 20 years searching for evidence and searching for understanding, not spending 20 years explaining why the way he did it the first time was right. Mm-hmm. Do you see the difference? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, yes, so, w- w- Wendell. But also, it's paradigms. Sometimes you cannot perceive a different paradigm because your perspective is focused in a given direction. And so perception is... is There's a little saying that goes like this, follow the money. Sometimes people are focused on one thing because they've got time into the, let's say, company or their medical, you know, is covered or something, but follow the money is generally the one that we talk about the least. So, um, and following up on that, reasons why people resist unfolding truth or could be that the new truth would require a change in lifestyle, change in diet, change in friends, change in work. They might lose a job if they accept. Uh, so their money could be compromised exactly the new truth. Um, they might lose reputation. A scientist who believes in creation suddenly might lose their professional reputation. So there can be lots of reasons why people resist. What's the best way to handle opposition to, to, to unfolding truth? I, I read this uh, paragraph out of a book called Christ Triumphant, and I thought it was interesting. What do you think? It says, let Christ be seen in all that you do. Let all see that you are living epistles of Jesus Christ. Let your life win the hearts of all who are brought in contact with you. There is too little done at the present time to render the truth attractive to others. There have been some who have, in speaking um, to the people, felt like they must make a raid on the churches. They sour, um, they, they sour minds by their censoriousness. I love that word, censoriousness. Okay, you know what that word means? Uh, not the English professor. 
<laughs> the censoriousness. I had to look it up, actually, but I, I, I was right. I, I figured it out by the basic, basic word, but I wanted to be sure. Censor is the base word, censor. Okay? Uh, and and uh, so censoriousness is somebody who's judgmental and critical. By their judgmentalism and criticism. They, they, they go through the church being judgmental and critical. By their, they sour minds by their judgmentalism and critical attitude. We want our hearts mellowed by the love of Jesus. That is in God's order. If not presented in the most pleasant, acceptable form, truth will be unpalatable to many. You know, this reminds me of a, uh, of some of the work I do with my patients. I talk to patients and their communication styles and people, we present ourselves to people in different ways. I have, uh, periodically men that come to see me who have a demeanor of anger and gruffness in their demeanor. They just seem angry and gruff. And, and their families complain that dad's always mad. Dad's always mad. The wife, he's always hostile. And, and they come into therapy. Somehow they were drug in. And in the sessions, the, the men will say, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. And I believe they're, in some cases that's true. They just have this demeanor, this way they talk, this is the way they grew up. And so I give the metaphor about presentation. And this is what it's about, how we present ourselves. So think about one of your favorite foods, whatever it might be. And we think about preparing it properly and presenting it to you on a, on a beautiful silver platter. We take that same exact food, morsel, whatever it is, and we present it to you on a garbage pail lid. Does it make a difference? Same thing. Does presentation change your reaction to it? You see, we can take truth and we can present it on a silver platter. We can also present it on a garbage pail lid. And that silver platter is often you and me. Are we presenting things graciously, patiently, kindly? Or are we presenting things with a judgmental and critical demeanor and attitude? See, does we make the truth unpalatable as we present it? While, while we must present the truth in contrast with error, let it be presented in a manner that shall create as little prejudice as possible. I think that's well stated. Do you, do you think that's a reasonable approach? And then out of the book called Evangelism, one more paragraph. This is on page uh, 166. It says, the best way to deal with error, what's the best way to deal with error? To present the truth and leave the wild ideas to die for want of notice. Contrast, contrasted with truth, the weakness of error is made apparent to every intelligent mind. Okay? Not all minds are intelligent. And that's not, that's not, it's just a reality. If you've had enough dealings with human beings, there are minds out there that are not intelligent. That's just a sad truth. They still deserve respect. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but, but we should, we should respect, but not necessarily expect that they understand. Okay, isn't that right? We, she's a teacher, she says. She gets it. Yeah, she knows. Yeah. The more the erroneous assertions of the opposer and of those who rise up among the, us to deceive souls are repeated, the better the cause of error is served. The more publicity is given to the suggestions of Satan, the better pleased is, this, is his satanic majesty. Yes. Yes, Wendell. I mentioned to you before the class that I went to Cuba this past week, and I went with a, a group from another religion. Um, I was invited to go along with them, and I was okay. What do I what do I say? What do I do, etc. And I, I was reflecting on this passage about where John came to Christ, 
and said, Master, there's a person who is using your name, who's preaching in your name, and we told him to stop. And he said, those who are not against you are for you. And um, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. friend. Okay, go ahead. And, and so, you know, I think too many times we, we focus on the wrong thing. I, I agree. No, the passage I came across in my reading this week, while I was there, it was, if we allow the mind to take its own course, there will be countless points of difference which may be debated by men who make Christ their hope, and who love the truth in sincerity, and yet who hold opposite opinions upon subjects that are not of real importance. These unsettled questions should not be brought to the front and urged publicly but should, if held by any, be done quietly and without controversy. A noble, devoted spiritual worker will see in the great testing truths that constitute the solemn message to be given to the world sufficient reason for keeping all minor differences concealed rather than to bring them forth to bring subjects of contention. Let the mind dwell upon the great work of redemption, the soon coming of Christ, and the commandments of God, and it will be found there is enough food for thought in these subjects that take up the entire attention. Yeah, I like where you're going with this, and, and, and I wanna, we're going to, I think, take and expand that whole line of thought in just a few minutes about how do we deal with differences of, of mind and difference of perspective, different beliefs, how do we deal with that? And I appreciate you bringing that up. We're going to jump on that in just a second. Um, question, though, I'll finish up this one thought, and then we'll go back to, I think, where Wendell's leading us, and that is this idea of truth and error. You know, it's, it, it's the first uh, uh, thought was, you know, we must present the truth in contrast with error. And the second thought is, um, let's not focus on the error. So what's the balance there? And this is what I, I, I thought of and came to, and see what you think. The, the balance of contrasting truth and error. Why is it sometimes necessary? I think it's sometimes necessary in order to help those who are in error understand and comprehend the difference between truth and error. As somebody said earlier, sometimes you can be so steeped into a certain, certain paradigm that um, a presentation can be heard and thought to support the paradigm you're in. Unless somebody makes a distinct contrast as to why that's not the same. You follow what I mean? I've seen this happen in this group um, where we present an idea, somebody else in another setting will present the exact opposite idea and people uh, will come to me and say, "What? I was so blessed by what you said. And then they heard the other speaker who presented just the opposite and I was so blessed by what they said. Have you seen this? Yes. Okay. And, and so sometimes it's necessary to make the distinction so the persons who have been steeped in certain ways of thinking can understand there are differences and let them make their free choice. But it's not appropriate, I think, to focus on the truth contrasted to the error for the purpose of humiliating, demeaning, criticizing, and hurting those who may have a, a distorted idea or to aggrandize self. <laughs> We've got the truth. <laughs> you poor, pitiful people. You're still in error, aren't you? <laughs> no, we don't want to do that. That would be incorrect. And sometimes truth is used in this way to, um, to hurt. And that would, I think, be wrong. Um, in Monday's lesson, and we're going to jump into what the idea, the concept that Wendell was bringing up. Uh, first paragraph says, Persecution can be a two-way street. It is often provoked by the malicious slander against those who have done nothing wrong, but it can also be provoked by inappropriate actions on the part of believers. On the part of believers. Inappropriate actions on the part of believers. What would you suggest would be some examples of inappropriate actions? 
Billboards. Uh, I've got that one on my list too. Billboards accusing certain people of having the mark of the beast. Have you seen those billboards? I saw some on I-75. Yeah. Or having a business where you cheat people. Having a business where you cheat people. How about having a church where you cheat people? My hand is actually going to go back to a side note, the, the uh, comment and truth that uh, there are varying levels of intelligence in individuals that want to run into. Just in case someone's either listening or tunes into it later, the understanding that as, you, as anyone with their God-given ability tunes into the Heavenly Father and creates that walk, that they are able to maximize the gifts that God has given to be able to grow them. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for, thank you for pointing that out. Well said. Um, how about Paul, in, in the actual letter to the Thessalonians, Paul calls, called some of them, quote, busybodies, unquote. That's in the Thessalonians. What do you think it means to be a busybody in the church? Gossiping. Pardon? Troublemaker. Being into everybody else's business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this would be an example of inappropriate behavior, wouldn't it? Being a busybody? Yeah. In the 1890s, the U.S. Congress was poised to pass legislation that would have required the citizens of the United States to observe Sunday as a religious day. Um, if the government should pass laws requiring all businesses to close uh, like they were proposing in the 1890s, um, should we as a group stand up and draw attention to ourselves or should we be cooperative and draw no attention to ourselves? In other words, the law is passed that there's not to be work done and it's a day of rest and relig- religious festival, um, which is what was proposed in the 1890s. Um, <clears throat> should we go out and make sure we mow our lawns and uh, do a lot of work um, insist that our businesses are open and open our business anyway because we protest this law? Or should we go along and, and start having you know, church services and stuff on Sunday? Well, this is out of uh, somebody who was a contemporary living at the time um, that wrote uh, in a book called Testimonies, Volume 9, page 232, to defy the Sunday laws, it was because they, they were living at this time and, and deciding in the church. This was a conversation went on about 125 years ago um, about how we should behave as Christians in such circumstances when, when these things happen. It says, to defy the Sunday laws will, will but strengthen their pers- in their persecution the religious zealots who are seeking to enforce them. Give them no occasion to call you lawbreaker. Keep right on with your missionary work and your Bible in your hand, and the enemy will see, see that he has worsted his own cause. One does not receive the, the mark of the beast because he shows that he realizes the wisdom of keeping peace by refraining from doing things that offend. Sunday can be used for carrying out various lines of work that will accomplish the lo- for the Lord. On this day, open-air meetings and cottage meetings can be held. House-to-house work can be done. Those who write can devote it to writing their articles. Whenever possible, let religious services be held on Sunday. Make these meetings intensely interesting. Genuine revival hymns. Uh, Sing genuine revival hymns and speak with power and assurance of the Savior's love. Speak on temperance and on true religious experience. So the attitude is... How many of you would have written that? 
that it is not a lieu of Missouri Sabbath. It's being able to take advantage of yet additional time. What do you think are the motives of those who want to legislate any type of religious observance? Any type, whether it's this or maybe, maybe somebody's now promoting that we'd have a better uh, society if everyone got baptized. And so we're going to promote uh, a legislation to baptize everyone in this country. What would, what would be the motive for them to do that? It would, the method would be coercion, but what would the motive be? Control. Control? Possibly. Possibly could be. It sure, certainly could be. Um, I heard in the news this week that the U.S. Park Service is considering banning motorcycles from many of the U.S. parks because uh, of the many complaints of the noise that some of the bikes are making. Some of the bikes can be heard over 12 miles away uh, in some of the parks with those, uh, with those special pipes they put on and those low rumble. And, and the reason they're considering this is not because they want to punish the motorcycle uh, riders, but to protect the tranquility of the park for all who will enjoy it. Do you think those who want to promote various religious legislation are motivated by a similar desire, not to make others do what they do, but, but by a, a false belief that they want to protect, say, a particular day um, that they find special and they perceive as being polluted or desecrated? What do you think? Could that be the motive? Hmm. Well, what's the problem with this type of thinking? There's a big problem with it. I hope you see it. Well, certainly it limits freedom, no question. But the underlying premise that other people can desecrate your spiritual experience. Other people's acts and behaviors cannot desecrate your spiritual experience. Only your choices, beliefs, and acts can desecrate your spiritual experience. Um, so in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, Paul says the following. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. First, though, what does it say about God? What does it say about God? That he gives each one of us genuine freedom to decide for ourselves. Think that through. G- does God give you freedom to make up your own mind on all of these issues, including whether you love and trust him or not. What does it say about him that he gives you that freedom? He doesn't use coercive pressure to force you into lie. It's huge. Huge. Yes. And a few verses later, in the same chapter, verse 14 out of chapter 14, Paul says, if one regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. Do you notice how Paul is not saying it is actually unclean. He's saying if a person regards it as unclean, then for him it is unclean. What do you understand that to mean? This is really cool, guys. What do you understand it to mean? How can something be sin because we think it is sin? She says because it goes against the conscience. If you believe the lie that eating cheese is sin... What will happen inside of you every time you eat cheese? 
Yes, your orbital, your orbital cortex and your and your medial prefrontal, your orbital medial prefrontal cortexes will activate and fire, causing impairment of your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, where you reason and think. Activating activation of your amygdala, which is your fear circuitry. Your blood pressure will go up. Your heart rate will go up. Your immune system will be activated. You'll begin releasing inflammatory factors called cytokines, and you will start damaging your body, which will react back upon your brain, causing white cell damage and neural loss in your brain. If you actually take actions that you believe are wrong. So on a physiological level, if you believe something is sin and do it anyway, you will be damaged by it. What about on a spiritual level? What happens when you do something that you believe is sin to your own sense of self? Do you become more proud or more shamed? Do you become more at peace or more guilt-ridden? And then what happens to your desire to walk into God's presence unreconciled, having done things that you believe are wrong? You see, sin alienates the sinner, damages our, our, our sense of self. We become ashamed. And just as Adam and Eve ran and hid because they were afraid, when we take actions that we believe are wrong, we become afraid. Afraid of God and we run and hide from him. So the action will not only have a physiologic consequence, it has a separating, it separates us from God. So what's the problem? Eating cheese? No, the problem is believing the lie because lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Satan is the father of lies. So what Paul is saying is that when you believe the lie, you're damaged by the lie. This is what happens. But let's turn it around and go to the other side. What if you believe the lie in the other direction the lie that was taught in America by doctors 120 years ago, that um, cigar smoke is a good treatment for lung disease. And doctors used to prescribe cigar smoke for lung disease in this country. So you believe that lie. What happens? And so you, you smoke cigars to help your lungs. Will your lungs get better? No, your lungs won't get better. They get damaged. What if you believe the lie that the apple you have just eaten has been poisoned with a poison, arsenic or mercury, but it hasn't been, but, but you believe it has been, what will happen if you believe you just ate a poison apple? Okay, so notice how, how lies work. The belief in a lie does not make something harmful good. The belief in a lie does not make something harmful good. But will cause something good to become harmful. Did you hear that? Yeah. Satan is the father of lies and he seeks to infect our minds with lies so that our internal mental, physical, and spiritual health will be damaged. What would you say if a person, let's give you another example, bought 1,000 Bibles and publicly burned them to protest Christianity? What would you say? What would Muslims say or do if somebody bought a thousand Korans and burned them to protest Islam? What a waste of money. <laughs> okay, you would say what a waste of money. Think this through. Does burning a sacred book change God? No. Does burning the sacred book change by another person? Does burning a sacred book by another person change you? It depends. 
It depends on what you believe in regard to the act. This is Satan's trick. If he can get another person to do something that infects your mind with a lie, then he's got power over you. He's, he's damaging you. If you believe that God is offended, that it's blasphemous, that such actions require punishment, that we should riot and burn the embassy of a particular nation, or hang the person who did it, then you have been damaged by their act. Because their act caused a lie to be believed in your head. And then you act on that lie, and that lie damages you. But if you believe that the other person is only demonstrating their heart, their character, if we cling to the truth that all sacred books are going to be burned when Christ comes anyway, and I mean, think it through, isn't it true? They're all going to be burned anyway. Um, and that burning a book doesn't change God, his methods, the laws upon which God runs his universe, his kingdom is still the same. Nothing about the reality of the universe changes if somebody burns sacred books. Then we can say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we're not damaged by their behavior. Do you see the subtleness and the trickiness of the devil and how he can get lies into our head and hurt us? The bottom of the lesson talks about the Bereans who were of more noble character because they checked everything with, that Paul taught them with the Old Testament. Now, I think that's a pretty good idea to check things out. Don't believe because someone tells you, including me. In our class, I've said this, I say this probably about every three months. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to challenge you to think for yourself. To get you to think for yourself. To weigh the evidences and come to your own conclusions. That's the purpose of come and reason, to teach people how to reason and think. Figure it out. Come to your own conclusions. Then believe those things which are evidenced. And you know we're promoting a certain methodology for dis discerning truth, and that is the three threads of evidence harmoniously blended. Scripture, God's laws in nature and science, and experience. When rightly understood, there's a perfect harmony of all three. When you separate those out, science without Scripture, ditch of evolutionism. Scripture without the laws of nature and science, distorted theologies about God's character, particularly imposed, imposed law constructs with a God that looks much like a Roman emperor. The lesson says uh, that, and same lesson, uh, that we have many things to learn and many, many to unlearn. What gets in the way of learning new things and unlearning old things? Are we typically as Christians pretty easy to, to, to grow in knowledge and unfolding truth? Do we, do we unlearn mistakes quickly and, 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 and openly? Do we tend to resist the unfolding of truth? When Christ came to explain the meaning of the Old Testament sanctuary service, the law that he'd given at Sinai, when he came to instruct them on the true meaning of all those things, were those religious leaders welcoming the new light and open to, be, to unlearn their misunderstandings, or did they resist it? Was it only that one small period in human history that this happened, or has this happened repeatedly? When Martin Luther discovered new light and began to share it, did the religious leaders embrace it and grow in this light, or did they resist it? And look at the history. Do you think we are any different today? And this is one of the things that I challenge. I challenge over and over. Don't ever arrive at the truth. Don't ever arrive. Because God is infinite. We're finite. How big is the gap? Infinite. No matter what we know, there's always more to know. 
No matter what we understand, there's always deeper understanding. So we want to be growing in the truth. Every day, Lord, what's the new lesson for me today? Lord, what's the new perspective? What's the new understanding? You're infinite. Expand my understanding, appreciation, knowledge of your kingdom, your character. I don't want to set my fence down, draw my boundaries of knowledge. This is the truth. Define it. Nothing else can ever penetrate. It asks in the lesson, what are uh, some examples of the Christian church acting in ways that were clearly wrong? And historically, crusades, inquisition, burning people at the stake. But what about more modern times? How about using the church resources and energy to seek to get the right politicians in office, the right judges appointed? Do you ever see Jesus and the apostles using their energies to get the right senators elected into Rome, the right governor appointed in Judea? Do you see any energy at the early church at all on human politics? Do you think it's a great trick? Isn't the purpose of the church is the purpose of the church to spend its energies on changing the state or changing the hearts of men? It's a great trick. Don't get caught up into the trick. Our passion, our goal, our, our, our motive, our, our purpose is to, ch- is to take the gospel to change the hearts of men. And when the hearts of men change, and they begin living the laws that God r- built the universe to operate upon, and they begin harmonizing with the laws of health because their hearts have changed and want to live in harmony, then the state doesn't have to pass health care laws. The state will change if the hearts of men change. Well, we only got through Monday's lesson, guys. There were so many more good things in the lesson. Um, uh, they're in the notes. The notes will be on the website. So I encourage you to um, visit the website, get the notes, and go through the rest. Uh, let's close, uh, close the prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us truth. You've given us freedom. That you are not coercive. That you really do want us to be fully persuaded in our own minds. We pray now that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds. Help us disentangle the confused ideas that we've struggled with. Help us, help us develop a heart that loves to grow in the truth and that we can, with each new thought, replace distortion with, with kingdom truth of your, of, your, of your methods and principles. We pray that if we've struggled with resentment and, and, and heartache and, and hostile feelings, that you will give us a, a heart of genuine forgiveness, that we will seek to, to care about the redemption of those who've done us wrong. This is more than our human hearts would want to do. Our human hearts would just want to punish. But we want to be changed to be like you. So we pray for that transformation in your holy name. Amen.